Well, good morning, RBF. Uh, such a joy to be with you, not only on retreat, but uh, particularly on a Sunday morning. Um, my wife and I were, were certainly edified just now, just not only singing with you, but also participating with you in a prayer of confession and a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. That was, uh, that was deeply edifying to my soul. Well, this weekend, so far, we have talked about the kingdom. God reigns, the temple, God dwells, the lamb, God saves. And for our last time together, we will consider the theme of bride, the bride, God, God loves, God loves. And maybe you're wondering why the bride, uh, that doesn't seem to be perhaps a very prominent uh, theme throughout scripture. Uh, Am I just throwing this in there almost like how an action movie throws in a random love interest to keep the female interest? Uh, no, no, not at all. That's, it's not some gimmick this morning. Again, I would encourage you at some point, maybe this week even perhaps, to read through Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 21 and 22 and just to see the, the themes that connect, that run from beginning to end. What similarities do you see? What differences do you see? I think that would be very interesting and helpful for you. And, and one point that you might not immediately recognize is that the Bible starts with a perfect marriage in paradise, and the Bible ends also with a perfect marriage in paradise. The Bible often uses marriage to explain truths, uh, some of the deepest and most profound truths uh, about God. And so without a biblical understanding of marriage, our understanding of God and our salvation would be incomplete and malnourished. And if you're not learning what the, uh, if you're not learning what marriage is from the Bible, then you are most likely, though unwittingly, learning about marriage from the music you listen to, the books you read, and the movies you watch. Our culture often paints a picture of marriage that is distorted, that is self-centered, that is emotionalistic. It's all about finding yourself rather than giving of yourself. And you might think our culture's stories about marriage are merely just entertaining you, um, but the, the stories that capture our imagination are often the ones that end up molding us and shaping us more than we realize. That which is entertaining becomes that which is beautiful, becomes that which is compelling to us. And so we must be careful. And so this morning, I want to counter those stories, not just by giving you bare principles about marriage. I want to counter those stories with a greater story, with a greater and more beautiful story of the story of marriage from beginning to end, from garden to new Jerusalem. And I would argue this is a more compelling story than any love story our world has to offer. And so whether you are temporarily married in this lifetime, or whether you are waiting for the new heavens and new earth as the eternal bride of Christ, uh, this is your story. This is your future. And so for the last time this weekend, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the beginning where all good stories start. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And, of course, this kicks off the creation week. And towards the end of the creation week, on day 6, we read in verse 26 to 28 about the creation of man. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every um, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here, I want you to see something that, that marriage reflects the image of God. Marriage is baked into creation from the very beginning. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that 
we, mankind, are, are a symbol of God's rule and reign. We talked about that in our first session. Being made in his image also carries the idea that we are, uh, like his, uh, we are his children. Like the way that you might say someone is a, a splitting image of their parents. But part of what it means to be made in the image of God is also that we are rational, that we are creative, that we are moral and even relational creatures. In fact, some would say that being made in the image of God is what allows us to love because God is love. So we're made in the image of God. We're made male and female. We're made with a capacity for relationship, with a capacity for love. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 2 in verses 18 to 25. You see, Genesis 1 is sort of the big picture creation story. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of man. And God tells this creation with more detail because it's important. He zooms in and gives more detail because there is something to be learned there. So in chapter 2, verse 18... I want you to notice what it says there. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Take note. This is the first time anything is not good in all of creation. Everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's good. This is the only thing that is not good. The first thing that is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I hope you notice here that this zooms in on this creation of man and woman in a unique way. It's not good for man to be alone. And, and God could have just made Eve immediately afterwards from the same dirt. But he didn't do that. Not by accident, not because he ran out of dirt. But God was teaching a theological lesson here. He made man and woman differently. He made man from the dirt, but woman he made from his side. He didn't have to organize an animal naming parade before Adam. Between the creation of man and woman, he chose to do that for a particular reason. The, the way that God made man and the way that God made woman teaches us important truths about both gender and marriage. Truths that we particularly today need to remember and reflect upon and, and hold fast to in the midst of a culture that is quickly running from these things. I, I love what Matthew Henry says about this creation account. He says this, Eve was not taken from Adam's head that she should rule over him, nor from his feet to be trampled underfoot, but she was taken from his side that she might be his equal, from under his arm that she might be protected by him near his heart that he might cherish and love her. That's good stuff. So God made man Male and female, he made them different. He made them differently, one from the dirt, one from the man's side. He made them complementary. There is a way in which woman is different from man, but there's a a way in which woman is the same as man. The reason why God created this animal parade naming party is so that Adam would say, okay, there's boy dog and a girl dog, a, a, a boy lion and a girl lion. Remember, no cats yet because the fall hadn't happened. And... He's going through and, and seeing, well, they come in pairs. They come in pairs. What, but there's, there's boy me, but there's no girl me. What gives? There's a lesson to be had there that man, it's not good for him to be alone. He's not complete. And so God creates her not out of dirt after this naming prayer, but out of his side to show that she comes from him. They're complementary. They're the same, but different. And not only the same, but different, but she comes from him. They fit together. They fit together like two puzzle pieces. They go together. They are complementary. And so marriage is a union 
of two complementary individuals, not just a union, but it's a reunion because man was taken, or woman was taken from man. And, and this complementariness is required in order for mankind to fulfill the task that God gave them. I mean, just consider, God said, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. They cannot fill the earth. Well, first, they can't have dominion unless they fill the earth. They can't fill the earth unless they are fruitful and multiply. They can't be fruitful and multiply unless the two become one. Adam is literally unable to fulfill the purpose for which he was made apart from woman. They go together in God's plan. They go together in God's plan. And then you go from there to Genesis 3.15. Again, we've, we've covered these courses so many times, but I want to make sure you see again, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, this, this promise that sets off the course of human history, that sets off the, the redemptive history and the plan of God, this begins by saying there's going to be an offspring of the woman, but not just a generic offspring, a male offspring. It says, he will crush your head. And, and so interestingly, marriage and childbearing is not only necessary for multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it, but marriage and childbearing would be the way in which God's promise would be fulfilled and the way in which the curse would be lifted. If there's no offspring, there is no seed of the woman, there's no serpent crusher, there's no curse undoing, there's none of that. Salvation would come through an offspring, and that offspring would come through man and woman becoming one flesh. So the, the plan of God, the salvation of the world, involved even required marriage and childbearing. So that is the first chapter. I'm sorry, I forgot to say that. The first chapter, marriage in the garden. Marriage in the garden. That leads us now to the second chapter in this story. Marriage in Israel. Marriage in Israel. You can jump ahead to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We already met Abraham once before, but just to reacquaint you again. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When he says, I'll make you a great nation, that, that requires offspring. You jump down to verse 7. Then the, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring. Again, that's the same word back from Genesis 3.15, by the way. To your offspring, I will give this land. So, so this word offspring gets carried over and is now, is now applied to Abraham. There's going to be an offspring of the woman, but Abraham, to your offspring, I'll give this land. And, and again, it's, this, this picture is not all, always fully in focus, but it's, it's starting to take shape. This offspring of the woman is going to come through Abraham. This offspring of Abraham is going to have this land and an offspring can, can be both plural and singular. So there's, there's a little bit of a, a play here on words. Your offspring, your descendants after you, the nation that will come from you, but also there will be an offspring down the road. And so the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled through children, through offspring, through being fruitful and multiplying. So that's why marriage was of central importance in Israel. Marriage was of central importance in Israel, and not only that, but childbearing was of central importance in Israel. Under that covenant, under the, the, the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, these things were incredibly important. Marriage and childbearing was important economically because uh, you, you didn't necessarily save for retirement. They didn't have like 403 or 401ks or Roth IRAs or, or whatever else in those days. What they had was children. What they had was children. Man, my retirement's looking pretty slim. We better have another kid. Because when I get old, that kid's going to take care of me. That's the idea. The more children you had, the more secure your future was because they would care for you. So, so marriage and childbearing were important economically, but it was also important theologically. God staked his reputation on Israel, and that's why God blessed Israel. 
You see, the Old Testament was a, a come and see religion. Come and see what God is doing in Israel. Come and see a people who live according to God's laws. Come and see a people who live righteously and wisely. Come and see a people who are blessed by God Almighty. Come and see so that you would worship that same God. The Old Testament was a come and see religion. So as Israel obeyed God, God would bless them spiritually and materially. So in that sense, God's blessing uh, his prosperity was like a stamp of approval on, on God's people so that the nations would know what God was like and what God expected and what God was pleased with. When Israel was faithful to their covenant and obedient to God's laws, they were holy and they represented God faithfully. They represented the God who was holy faithfully and so God would bless them. Now part of God's blessing under the Mosaic covenant was also bearing children. Just listen to these verses, Exodus 23, 26. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. When you obey me, none will miscarry, none will be barren. Deuteronomy 7, 14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Even your livestock will not be barren if you obey me. I want to bless you so you're a blessing to the world, so the world sees this blessing and comes to worship me. But another reason why marriage and childbearing was so important is not just economically or not just theologically in terms of them being blessed by God, but also because this promised offspring, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse, would have to be born of a woman in Israel, born of an offspring through Abraham, eventually through um, Isaac and Jacob, and then through Judah, and then through David. And so in an important way, God's blessings were shown and passed down through marriage and through children. But marriage not only was important in those ways, but marriage was also significant theologically in Israel because God used marriage as an illustration, as a picture of his relationship to Israel. He used it as a picture of of what his relationship was like with Israel. After the Exodus uh, and, and after delivering Israel out of Egypt, God entered into a covenant with them, the Mosaic Covenant. And as we mentioned earlier, that, that later biblical authors would look back to this moment and say that was their wedding day. That was the wedding day between God and Israel. God entered into a covenant with his people. There was a marriage-like relationship under the Mosaic Covenant. Jeremiah 2, you can, you can turn ahead there. Past Psalms all the way to Jeremiah chapter 2 and just see how how the prophet Jeremiah, speaking the words of God, describes their relationship. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it, all who attacked Israel, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. God says, I, I remember you were devoted. You, you had a love for me as a bride. We, we mentioned yesterday, Jeremiah 31, uh, speaking of the old covenant, that God said, I, I, was a, I was a husband to you, declares the Lord. And so with that, with that backdrop, I want you to keep all that in mind and turn to Ezekiel now. <clears throat> One, uh, two more books over to the right. Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. And, and I want to warn you perhaps up front, this is, this is not a passage that is for the faint of heart. God does not mince words here. God doesn't do this just for effect, but he, he wants us to understand not just intellectually, but even viscerally, emotionally. He wants us to understand what our sin is like, given the fact that our relationship with him is to be like a marriage. And so let me read for you Ezekiel 16 verses 1 to 14. God says, you, I entered into a relationship with you. It's like a marriage. And now this is how God describes how their marriage went. Ezekiel 16 Starting in verse 1, again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land uh, of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, 
On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, no eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, and yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So you see here, God had pity on Israel. God cleansed her, though she was filthy. He gave her life, though she was destined for death. He not only redeemed her from slavery, but he brought her up into royalty. He bestowed all these riches on her. God did not love Israel because Israel was lovely. Instead, Israel became lovely because God loved her. But let's see what happens next. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The the like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. This is is shocking. This is scandalous. This is staggering. As beautiful as it is for God to call his relationship to Israel as a marriage, that makes their sin all the more heinous and outrageous and unthinkable. This is not just a matter of disobedience or law-breaking. This is a matter of, of, of adultery, of unfaithfulness, of harlotry. You see, when we think about our sin before God, if you just think of it as, oh, yeah, I just uh, I broke a rule. Go above the speed limit a little bit. Oh, my bad. Sorry. No, when we sin against God, it it is relational. There's an unfaithfulness. There's an adultery that's happening there. And and jump down now to verse 30. How, How sick is your heart? Verse 30 declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of, of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. 
Friends, this is, this is meant to shock us. This is meant to disturb us. This is meant to sicken us. God was the perfect husband, taking her from rags to riches and even royalty, and yet she abused his grace and brazenly played the harlot. But just as the stars shine brightest in the darkest night, it is against this backdrop of adultery that God's love and faithfulness shine the brightest. Jump down to Ezekiel 16, verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on the account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord and you may remember that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone, when I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. In light of all her sin, in light of all her unfaithfulness, in light of all her adulteries, he says, yet there is hope. Yet I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Yet I will atone for your sin. This is a reference, of course, to the new covenant. You broke my old covenant, but I'm making a new covenant by which I will atone for your sin. I will forgive you. I'll make you mine. We've already talked much about the new covenant, but I want to highlight another portion of Scripture for you. Turn to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. After the book of Daniel and and. If you see the other minor prophets that you don't know, then turn back to the left. Hosea is the first one. Perhaps the most well-known passage that compares God's relationship uh, relationship to Israel as a marriage is the book of Hosea. You're familiar with this, I'm sure, or or perhaps you are. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, it says, "When, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, And have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and conceived, she conceived and bore him a son. So you see here, he tells Hosea, go and take a wife of whoredom. Why? Because my people, because The land creates great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. My people have forsaken me, so go and take a wife who forsakes you. Hosea, you're going to be an object lesson for me, to my people. And God condemns Israel for her adultery in chapter 2 with scathing judgment. But after these words of scathing judgment for her adultery, he offers words of hope through Hosea. Look at Hosea 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. After all her sin, after all this scathing judgment, I will allure her. I will bring her. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. My Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And listen to these sweet words. And I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Despite all her sin, despite all her rejection of God, God would remain faithful. Jump down just one more verse to Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves his children, loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. He says, Hosea, you're, you're to be this picture of this unrelenting love. This love that will not give up, this unbreakable, unshakable, unconditional love, you're going to set this picture for me. Even though Israel has been unfaithful, yet God is faithful and God still pursues her. God still makes promises to her. Uh, the, The new covenant here mentioned has overtones of a faithful husband pursuing an unworthy and unfaithful bride. And so the Old Testament ends once again with this cliffhanger. Uh, Israel is back in her land, but there's no king on the throne. They're back in their land, but the covenant is broken. They're back in their land, but, but they're still unfaithful. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Israel's still waiting for their broken marriage to be restored. And so we come from the first chapter, marriage in the garden, to marriage in Israel, to now, to now marriage in Christ. Chapter 3, marriage in Christ. And it's fascinating into this culture in the ancient Near East, into this first century Judaism, into this culture that idolized family that depended upon ethnic background for their standing with God. Jesus turned everything on its head. Jesus turned everything on its head for this culture that thought so much of their genealogical history. Just consider for a moment in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. He says words like this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus says spiritual relationships trump biological Israel, who prided themselves on their biological history, on their family connections. Jesus says, spiritual relationships trump biological. Not only that, uh, Matthew 22, verses 30 to 33, Jesus makes clear that there's, there's no marriage in heaven. What was so important and central in the old covenant now is of no importance in heaven. Matthew 22, starting in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. There's no marriage in heaven. Turn back a few chapters to Matthew 19. To Matthew 19, starting in verse 10. After teaching about uh, divorce, Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12, The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If, if divorce is, is, is wrong apart from very small exceptions, if, if you can't divorce your wife for any reason, they say it's better not to marry. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, just speaking broadly, a eunuch was somebody who did not have the ability to to be married, did not have the ability to have that kind of relationship. Some are born that way. Some are, are become that way. And some, he says, choose to be that way for the sake of the kingdom. For a society that idolized family, that idolized childbearing, that idolized the genealogical issue of passing down your name, to hear that 
some would choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom would have been mind-blowing. And perhaps in our culture today that idolizes sexual fulfillment, you can't be fully human unless you express yourself and fulfill yourself sexually. To say to this culture, there are some who choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let him who has ears to hear, hear it. This is mind-blowing to our culture. You do not need to be fulfilled sexually to have all those things, to pursue all those things in order to be a complete human. We need to say that to a world, to a society that idolizes, that idolizes sex and sexual fulfillment. So, but, but back to Jesus' day, what's going on here? Marriage and children was central in the old covenant. It was a sign of blessing in the old covenant. Why is it so? I want you to consider John 3. The reason is because the new covenant is about new birth, about spiritual birth, about being born again. You you know, these words, they are familiar to you. Jesus says in John three, verse three, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. The old covenant, let me put it this way. The old covenant was about your physical birth. The new covenant is about spiritual birth. In the old covenant, blessings were passed through birth, but now in the new covenant, blessings are passed on by new birth. You're included in the new covenant, not by your upbringing, not by your family background, but by your faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than a come and see religion where where there's, there's this ethnic nation in this one particular land, now this is a go and tell religion. Go to all the nations and tell them. Go to every people, tribe, language, and tongue. Rather than be fruitful and multiply physically, now it's go and make disciples spiritually. Part of the purpose of the old covenant was to create a holy nation from which would come the Messiah. And now that the Messiah had come, and since he would establish the new covenant, that means the old covenant with its emphasis on physical offspring and ethnic people, that's no longer central. Jesus is here. So, okay, having children no longer has the same role today as it did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, economically, perhaps it still carries over, but, but that idea of looking for the offspring has been fulfilled. So having children no longer has the same role today as it did in the Old Testament. But, but what about marriage? What about marriage? Well, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. And you knew it had to come to, to this passage, of course. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Again, I'll I'll read this whole section and just draw out some highlights here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, even just reading through that once, I I hope it's clear that behind human marriage, behind the instructions to husbands and wives, there is a foundational truth. And Paul 
alludes to it in his instruction to the wives. Paul makes it a little bit clearer in his instructions to the husband. But he, he builds up his argument and brings it to a climax in verse 31 and 32. Verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2, 24. He quotes all the way back to the first marriage of Adam and Eve. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then listen to verse 32. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I believe what he's saying here is that all the way back in Genesis 2, 24, Yes, that's about Adam and Eve, but more importantly, God is saying this is one day going to be about Christ and the church. It wasn't as if Paul was writing Ephesians and said, you know what would really help wives submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives? You know what would really help? An analogy. Let me try to think of one. Oh, you know what? Let's just make that connection. Paul didn't come up with that. Paul said this has been so since the beginning that the mystery is profound all the way back in the garden. This was about Christ and the church. This is the high point of this section in Ephesians 5. This is the banner. This is the thesis. This is the main idea that controls all of his instructions to husbands and wives. The reason why he tells wives to submit, the reason he says to husbands love is because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. The union of a husband and wife is an echo of the union of Christ and his redeemed. In the marriage union, the two share all and nothing is kept from one another. In marriage, Jesus takes our debts and our sins. And in marriage, we gain his riches and his righteousness. Have you ever thought about that? Young person, maybe you thought about that. I want to marry rich. My debts are that person's and that person's riches are mine. Too many of you are laughing. You shouldn't think that way. When we are joined to Christ, he takes our sin. He takes our filth. He, he takes all our brokenness. He takes it all and he says, I will take it. And he gives us everything that's his. Nothing is held back. All is shared. We are one with Christ in an even more profound way than a husband and wife are one with one another. This is how John Piper explains it in his book, uh, This Momentary Marriage. He says this, Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you ask the average person what marriage is all about, you'd probably get answers like this. Uh, marriage is about falling in love. Uh, but what about those days when you fall out of love? Do you, do you stop being married? Uh, marriage is about being happy. But, but what if there are days that you aren't happy? What if your spouse ceases to make you happy? No. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about keeping our covenant so that we can properly represent Christ who keeps his covenant. Christ will never leave his bride. Therefore, we must be faithful to ours. Our marriage is about keeping covenant, about faithfulness. Even if it hurts us, we will be faithful. We will sacrifice. We will lay down our lives and love our spouses because Christ will never leave his bride. And we don't want to misrepresent Christ. See, in, in the old covenant, marriage was a picture of God and Israel. And here in Ephesians 5, we're told it's a picture of Christ and the church. In fact, the way Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, he's saying that that marriage between God and his people is the true ultimate reality and the human institution of marriage is the shadow. It's the illustration, not the other way around. I, I love what Jeffrey Bromiley says, or Bromley, Bromiley, I don't know. Here's what he says. As God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. Friends, this is why marriage matters. And just practically, this is why your purity matters. It's not just because God says so. It's because God gave us this powerful gift of marriage and with it intimacy and sex. He gave us these things because it was meant to picture the gospel. And therefore, we must protect those things. We must keep those things pure. We must keep those things sacred. We must use them how God ordains. 
Therefore, don't squander marriage. Don't misspeak about it, about with the way that you live. Honor marriage. For those of you who work, you, you have coworkers who would rather work long hours than go home to their spouses. For those of you who are working, you have talked to people who just complain about their spouses. May you shine as a bright light in your workplaces. May you speak of your spouse. May you speak of your marriage with a joy that reflects the gospel. Don't absorb worldly and shallow thinking about marriage from movies and music. Instead, keep a high and transcendent view of marriage in your mind and in your heart. Marriage is meant to display the glory of God, and in particular, the glory of the gospel to a dying world that must see it. Preach the gospel with your words, yes. Preach the gospel with your marriage. Men, learn to be sacrificial, to lay down your life because Christ is your example. Consider what Christ has done for you and do your best to show some echo of that to your wife. Ladies, learn to to follow and submit, not because your husband is better than you, but because the church is your example. Every marriage is a mini drama of the gospel. So let's display it faithfully and joyfully and beautifully, beautifully. And one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 7. I want to invite you to just turn there briefly. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 speaks about God's love in, in a really profound way that struck me when I read this years ago. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. This is God speaking about Israel. He says there, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let me me just pause there for a moment. These verses are answering this question, why does God love Israel? Why does God love Israel? Now, Abraham was an idolater from essentially Babylon. He made an oath to Abraham, but Abraham didn't earn it. The oath he swore to the forefathers was not earned. Why did God love Israel? And God says, it's not because you were more in number than any other peoples. And you can kind of expand that. It's not because of how great you are, Israel. It's not because of, of you, were, you being great in number. It's not because you're more obedient. That is, has been borne out many times. It's not because you're more wise, you're more good, you're more anything. It's not because you're more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you. If you could kind of condense these verses down together, essentially what God is saying to Israel is this. Israel, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. That might sound confusing at first, but if you dwell on that, it is profound. Because if a a man and a woman get engaged and they're going to get married and the, the girl says to the guy, oh, honey, why do you love me? Which I'm sure no woman ever asked that, right? <laughs> Hypothetical. Oh, honey, why do you love me? That's her eyes. Uh, typical answer. Oh, because you're so beautiful. Oh, yeah, well, what if I get into an accident that disfigures my face? Will you stop loving me then, huh? I, I love you because I love you because you... You cook so well. Oh, what if I burn the next meal, huh? Did you just dump me, huh? Yeah, what? I I love you because uh, you fill in the blank. If it's something about them, it's insecure. It can change. Even I love you because you love the Lord. What if she falls away? Do you cease loving her? What if she goes through a dark season of struggle? Do you stop loving her? I love you because, and if it's anything about you, it's insecure. It is easily lost. 
But God says to Israel and God says to us through Christ, I love you because I love you. I love you in spite of you, not because of you. I love you not because of you. I love you because I am love. I love you because I love you. It's a sovereign choice of grace that I love. And this is secure. This is rock solid, unchangeable because I change all the time, but God does not. So if God says, I love you because I love you, then you're secure. Isn't that beautiful? So the next time she says, honey, why do you love me? I love you because I love you. Write that one down. A word for singles. What if you are not or never get married? What about what Jesus said about eunuchs? What about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about those who remain single and they're able to give undistracted devotion to the Lord? I want to encourage you and remind you, yes, under the new covenant, singleness is not a curse. Barrenness is not a curse. For those of you who, who weep and wait, barrenness is not a curse under the new covenant. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, before any major hero is born, there's, there's often a woman who is barren and waiting. Such is how God works. But under the new covenant, singleness is not a curse. Andreas Kostenberger, though, highlights this cultural phenomenon well. He says, it is probably no exaggeration to say that the thought that singleness could be an acceptable permanent state has not even occurred to many people in our churches today. What is more, the only call of God that Western Christians fear more than the call to missions is the call to a life of celibacy. Shouldn't be that way. Now, let me, let me just make this caveat. Singleness for the glory of Christ is a good thing, but delayed marriage because of selfishness and laziness is a sinful thing. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Marriage is not a qualification for a happy, meaningful, or fulfilling life. Jesus was single. Godly, content singleness. Godly, content singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of Christ's goodness. Godly, selfless marriage demonstrates the goodness of Christ's gospel. No matter what state you're in, you can glorify Christ. One pastor named Marshall Siegel once commented that no one in Christ is single and no one in heaven is married. Marriage has no purpose in the coming paradise. In the, in the happiest place in history, in the happiest place in history, that will be heaven, not Disneyland. In the happiest place in history, heaven, there will be no weddings, no marriage, and no sex. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. Uh, Barry Danilak in a book on singleness, wrote this. The presence of both single and married people in the church signifies the fact that the church lives between the ages. Married people are necessary because the church is still part of the current age. But single people remind it that the, the spiritual age has already been inaugurated in Christ and awaits imminent consummation. We're still in this world Still having children, that's a good thing, but we're still looking, we're also looking ahead to the next. And so therefore marriage is relativized and singleness is, is, is celebrated. So everyone, single or married, is betrothed to Christ and waiting for the wedding. We're, we're betrothed to Christ and waiting for the wedding. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 too. In 1 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, Corinthians, since I betrothed you to one husband. You're engaged to one husband. And so I'm, I feel jealousy to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Be pure because I've devoted you to Christ. I've betrothed you to Christ. Similarly, in Ephesians 1, it says that the Holy Spirit is a, a guarantee. He, he, he seals us. It's almost like the Holy Spirit living within us is an engagement ring that Christ will come back for us. And so we look forward to that day when, as it says in Ephesians 5, he will present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and blameless. So the last chapter, and this will just take a minute here, marriage in heaven, marriage in heaven. We're betrothed, we're waiting, but the church is still broken, we're dirty, we're full of sin, we're waiting to be washed clean without any spot or wrinkle or blemish. How do we get ready? Christ will wash us with his blood. He washes us with his blood and clothes us with white robes. 
Revelation 7 talks about how along with the tribulation saints, we wash our robes white in the blood of the lamb. And then you turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, all the way towards the end. In verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of Many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is, is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're here for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the bride is ready. And then you come to the last two chapters, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jump down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, behold, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain coming uh, sh- and, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. No matter what your wedding dress looked like, it doesn't compare to this. This is the wedding to end all weddings. This is the end of human marriage as we know it. Jump down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, this is where all things come together in a final consummation. One day, all human marriages will cease, but this marriage will endure forever, will continue forever with the lamp, uh, with the lamb as its lamp in the city of God. Eden begins with a perfect couple and the new heavens and new earth. The new creation ends with a perfect couple. Why has God done all this? Not just to establish a kingdom, not just to dwell with man, not just to save a people. God has orchestrated all of redemptive history to choose and to save for himself a bride for his son. He's orchestrated his son's wedding. This is marriage happily ever after, heavenly ever after. And so it, it is appropriate, I think, to, to now finish with the, the epilogue here. I've, I've read through portions of Revelation 22, but I want to finish here with Revelation 22 from verse 6 to the end. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, let the, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree, uh, to, to the tree of life, and that uh, they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and adulterers uh, and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. Oh Lord, may you help us to remember that you are the God who reigns, you're the God who dwells with us, you're the God who saves, and you're the God who loves. Oh Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to represent you well. Help us to love you because you have loved us first. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.